O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, the scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, this day, the first of days. Holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew today, chapter 5, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We have worked our way through the Beatitudes, and we got last week to verses 13 through 16 of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to pick up there today and sort of finish out this section on being salt and light in the world. And then we're going to take it through verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Matthew chapter 5. We'll go ahead and read verses 13 through 20 this morning. And then we'll take a closer look at what the Lord has to say. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I keep reminding you of the fact that the Sermon on the Mount was originally intended to be descriptive, not prescriptive. What Jesus is giving us here in Matthew chapter 5 is a picture. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Jesus is giving us a picture of what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like and what a subject of the king really is. And that's what we get there in the Beatitudes. And I won't belabor that point. If you weren't here for that section on the Beatitudes, as you've already heard, you can get a copy of the CD, probably several CDs by this point, and you can go back and you can listen to that. But Jesus is saying, if you are living like this, if you are living the kind of life that you see described there in the Beatitudes, he said, you will have an influence, you will have an impact on the world. And that influence will be felt in two ways, he said. You will be like the salt of the earth, and you will be like the light of the world. Now, we asked last week, what does it mean to be like the salt of the earth? What exactly did Jesus mean? And we said that in the first century, salt had a couple of very important functions. Its primary function, of course, in an age before refrigeration in the first century, was to serve as a preservative. It helped to stem the tide of decay. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he says, by living the Christian life, by fulfilling our vocation as the followers of Jesus Christ, we will actually be like salt. We can actually stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay in the culture. 
And we took a look at what that looks like in 2 Timothy. And we said that, that those words were written 2,000 years ago, but they're a description of our time. And so Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. Notice he doesn't say, you should be the salt of the earth. He says, if you're living according to this picture that you have in the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. You will have an influence on the culture around you. And you will help stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay. We said that not only, however, was salt used as a preservative, it was also used as a condiment. Uh, that is to say, it brought out the flavor in life. We've all had food that doesn't have salt in it. And it doesn't taste bad. It just doesn't taste at all. And so many people's lives are just like that. They're bland and they're insipid. And as Christians, we have found the key to success, successfully living. And that is to have a personal relationship with God. That is to have that peace which we all long for, that peace which passes human understanding. And if we are living with that peace flowing out of our lives and everything that we do, we will be attractive to others. Others cannot help but be drawn into this life of faith. They will be, if, it were, if you could take it the right way, they will be provoked to jealousy. They'll be jealous of what we have and long to obtain it. Jesus says, if you are the salt of the earth, that's what you'll do. We said there were a couple of other things about salt. Salt had a medicinal function in the first century. It actually served as an antiseptic. We said that if you have a cut on your leg and you go into the ocean and swim around, you'll notice that it actually facilitates the healing process. Jesus said if you are the salt of the earth, you will actually help to facilitate the healing of relationships, broken relationships between individuals and God and individuals with one another. And we noted two other things about salt. We said that salt is common. Jesus never said you're the gold of the earth or you're the uranium of the earth. He said you are the salt of the earth. You don't have to have a PhD from an Ivy League school in order to make a difference in the world. Sometimes those people that have those degrees make impact on the world, but it's not necessarily a positive one sometimes. Salt is common. Jesus said you can be a normal individual and still make a profound difference in the world. And we said this last thing about salt. Salt is invisible. When it gets rubbed into the meat, it disappears. But you can still taste it, even though you cannot see it. And Jesus is saying that if we live in this way, we can have an effect even long after we are gone on our children and our children's children. So that's what he means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. We went on to talk about what it means to be the light of the world. And we said that light does two things. Number one, it brings illumination. It brings illumination. It exposes. We said one of the reasons why we all like to have candlelight romantic dinners is because everybody looks better under candlelight. Nobody wants to go for a romantic dinner in a restaurant where they have the fluorescence on. Because they expose us, don't they? All of our cracks and our flaws and our blemishes. Well, Jesus is saying if you are the light of the world, you will expose the darkness. You kick over that board or that log out there in the field and the sun hits that area that has never seen the light before. And what's the first thing you see? The creatures of the dark crawling for cover. That's what light does. If you are living in this way, Jesus said you will have a convicting influence on the world. Now, that purpose is not merely to condemn, but it is to what? To provoke repentance. Jesus said you can have that kind of an influence. Not only does the light, however, bring exposure, it causes growth. 
that same log that you kick over and you see all those little bugs and squirmies go for cover, you'll notice that the grass underneath it is oftentimes sickly. But expose it to the light for about three days and you go back and you'll notice that it's flourishing. It's alive. Jesus is saying you can have that kind of an impact on the world. Indeed, he says, if you're living according to the description that we have in the Beatitudes, he said you will be that kind of a person. You will be the salt of the earth. You will be the light of the world. But, and we didn't get to this last week, Jesus nevertheless goes on to ask this question, though. But what if the salt loses its flavor? What if a person takes their light and hides it under a bushel? The first question we have to ask ourselves is, can the salt lose its flavor? Can salt lose its flavor? I was teaching on this passage on one occasion, and somebody came up to me, I guess he was a chemist, and he says, you know, salt cannot lose its flavor. Well, I'm not a chemistry major, so I didn't know that. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, sodium chloride is a very stable compound. He said, it, it just doesn't stop being salt. Well, the good news is that I wasn't trained as a chemist, but I was trained as an historian, and I knew a little bit about what Jesus was talking about in the first century. Salt in Jesus' day was actually a powdery substance that was collected near the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. Some of you are actually going to the Holy Land with me coming up, and you're going to have an opportunity to go to the Dead Sea. Uh, you may even have an opportunity to swim in the Dead Sea. Um, you'll do it once, and once will be enough, I promise you. <laughs> you don't actually swim in the Dead Sea, because the salt content is so great that you actually float. You cannot sink in the Dead Sea. It's, it's quite an experience, to say the least. But there was this powdery substance that would wash up on the shore of the Dead Sea, and it contained salt. It contained a lot of other minerals, however. And in the rainy season, when the rain would come down, it would wash out the sodium chloride, but it would leave behind the other minerals, this white powdery substance around the edges of the Dead Sea. And so it looked like salt, but if you tasted it, it didn't taste like salt. Now, in the first century, what was that good for? Well, it wasn't good for anything, except, Jesus says, to be thrown out and trampled under feet. It was used to pave the roads. So Jesus is saying, if you and I are called to be the salt of the earth and have this profound influence on the culture, but we lose our saltiness, that saltiness is washed out, what good are we? That's the question that Jesus is asking. What good is our life? Our life is good for maybe the time that we are here, but beyond that? And, and the question is, is it even good for our time here? We all want to leave behind a legacy. We all want to make an impact on the world. We want to know that our life was worth living. Well, that's what Jesus wants for us. In my last parish in Beaufort, we had an historic churchyard as well, and every now and then I would go out there and practice my sermons, walking through the churchyard, preaching. Sometimes it was pretty good preparation for the congregation. Um, not always, but, but sometimes it was. Um, uh, at any rate, I was walking through the, the cemetery one day, and I, was, I saw this little tombstone. And I went over and looked at it, and it had a lady's name on it, and then it had this epitaph, the Belle of Beaufort. I thought, the Belle of Beaufort? Who was the Belle of Beaufort? 
So I went into the church office and I said, anybody know who the Bella Buford is? Nobody knew who the Bella Buford was. So I went to people who were native Bufordtonians and I asked them, people who had been there for generations, who was the Belle of Buford? Nobody had a clue. And it struck me as rather sad because she at least thought of herself as the Belle of Buford <laughs> and presumably somebody else thought of her as the Belle of Buford. But just a few years after her passing, nobody remembered her. It's rather sad, isn't it? We don't want that to be the case in our lives. We want to live in such a way that we make a difference. A difference that is lasting, not just for a time, not just for a season, but for eternity. That is what it means to live the Christian life. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to lead one person into the kingdom of God, that is to have an impact. That is to have an impact that is for eternity. Not just for a time, not just for a season. So Jesus is saying, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Well, there is a sense in which it can lose its saltiness, Jesus was saying. And what is it good for? Well, it is good for nothing. It is good for nothing. What does it look like if salt loses its saltiness? The Greek word is hypocrites. It's the word from which we get hypocrite. What does it look like? When the salt loses its saltiness, it looks like hypocrisy. The Greek literally means, get this, to wear a mask. That's what our word hypocrite means. It means to wear a mask. It comes from the Greek theater, where people would come out and play a part on the stage, but you didn't know their true identity. Why? Because they wore a mask. Maybe it was a mask of tragedy. Maybe it was a mask of comedy, but you did not know who the person was until the very end of the play when they would take off their mask. And the Greek word there is anupokritos, without a mask. What does it look like for people to lose their saltiness, for the citizens of the kingdom of God to lose their saltiness? It looks, Jesus says, like the Pharisees and the scribes. It looks like hypocrisy. It's to wear a mask, it's to play the part, but not really to be the person. And Jesus asks the question, what good is that? That's the question. It's good for nothing, he says. Now perhaps you're wondering, well practically, what does this look like? What does it mean, practically, on a day-to-day -day basis, to be salt and light? Well, we all have different vocations. We all have different callings. But there are certain things that apply to all of us when it comes to being salt and light in the world. I think in our day and age, at the bare minimum, it means the following. If you and I are going to really live out our Christian vocation, remember, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. That being the case, what does it mean? It means that at least in our day and age, Christians must be more outspoken in condemning the injustices and the wickedness and the sin that we see in the world. Because remember, one of the functions of light is to do what? To expose the darkness. Now, this is a hard thing for us because we have been taught to be polite people. But there are a great many injustices in the world. And Jesus was quick to name them. 
And it means that you and I must be more outspoken in condemning the evil and the wickedness that we see in the world. It's been said that the only thing necessary in order for evil to triumph is for what? For good people to do nothing. For good people to do nothing. Now, this was the case in Germany in the 1930s with the rise of the Nazi party. The German Lutheran Church, actually, in an attempt to remain in a high standing in society, collaborated with the Nazis. But there were a number of people who came out from among them and spoke against the Nazi party. And they were called the Confessing Church. I had people like Karl Barth, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, and they also had a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You probably heard of him. And they spoke against the evil of that day. They were in the minority, but they spoke against the evil of the day. Now, they paid a price. They paid a price. Karl Barth was a great scholar, but he was forced to flee Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you all know, was imprisoned. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you knew this, he was the last man to be executed by the personal order of Adolf Hitler. Now think about that for a minute. He wasn't a military commander. He wasn't a physicist planning the A-bomb. He was a pastor. But he was considered to be such a threat to the Nazi party that he got the attention of Adolf Hitler and was personally executed as the last man by the Fuhrer. And we remember him today. There's been a wonderful new biography that's come out about him. So you can have that kind of an impact on the world, but you've got to be willing to stand in the gap, and you've got to be willing, if necessary, to pay the price. At the very least, that's part of what it looks like. Christians must be more authentic in their daily lives. They have to be willing to take off that mask so that what people see is genuine. This is one of the things that the millennial generation constantly complains about the older generations. They said, we want you to be authentic. And so many of us go around putting on that mask of respectability. We spend our whole lives trying what? To earn people's favor, to be respectable, to be liked, to be loved. I talked about this a few weeks ago in the sermon with that Samaritan woman at the well. What was the one thing that she wanted? She wanted to be truly known and truly loved. Isn't that what we want? And so many of us put up the facade and put up the mask because we are afraid that if someone really knew us, who we really are, what we really think, we would not be loved. I love that wonderful collect at the beginning of the liturgy. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and what? And from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our How would you like me to know the secrets of your heart? You fear that that would change the way that I feel about you? I don't want you to know what's the secret the secrets of my heart. I think the first thing you'd probably think is, he ought not to be wearing that collar. <laughs> and the second thing you'd probably think is, what was the search committee thinking when they called him? <laughs> See, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is that we are fully known and we are fully loved in spite of it. 
And if we are the followers of Jesus Christ, we have got to live that kind of authentic life. Not pretending to be perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, because there's not a single one of us that is. But recognizing that even though we are not perfect, we are redeemed. And to live as redeemed people. As the citizens of the kingdom of God. I think that's what it means, at least in part. It means that we must be fearless in our daily lives. And when I say fearless in our daily lives, this flows into the next one. Outspoken in the sharing of our faith. I asked a question in a sermon some time back. If I asked you to go down to the market today and begin to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ, how many of you would be anxious about that? Of course we would be. We're anxious because oftentimes we don't feel equipped, do we? Most of us prefer to think of the words of St. Francis, who, when he sent out his followers, said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He's echoing Jesus' words of the Great Commission. He says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Isn't that what we think? Oh, that sounds good to me. I like that. St. Francis got it right. I'm willing to go out and, and live in such a way that people see a difference in me, but I am not prepared to share my faith. That's the responsibility of the rector and the cadre of clergy that he has. I want to read you something from the Book of Common Prayer. It's on page 855. It's part of the catechism, and this is the question. Who are the ministers of the church? Now, how many of you know your catechism? Who are the ministers of the church? Well, I'm glad somebody got it right. The answer is lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Now, you ask most people in the pew today, who are the ministers of the church? And they're probably going to say Jeff Miller, Andrew O'Dell, Mark Bouton. They're going to say, you know, Hank Avant. They're going to go through the whole list of our clergy, and they're going to say, they are the clergy. They are the ministers of the church. But actually, the catechism said, Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons, are the ministers of the church, and lay persons come first. And here's the follow-up question. Well, then, what is the ministry of the laity? Listen to this answer. The ministry of lay persons is to represent Christ and His church, to bear witness to Him wherever they may be, and according to the gifts given them, to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take their place in the life, worship, and governance of the church. We are all, by virtue of our baptism, called to bear witness to Christ wherever we may be, and according to the gifts given to us to carry on His reconciling work in the world. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn to Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bibles with you, and let me encourage you again to bring your Bibles. It's okay for Episcopalians and Anglicans to bring their Bibles to church. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that wonderful news? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then, the very next verse, he goes on. But how will they call on him of whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How many of you want to know that your children and your grandchildren are going to be with you in heaven one day? How willing are you to share the gospel with them? You know, sometimes we are a little more anxious about sharing the gospel with our family than we are with strangers, aren't we? I don't know if I told you, I told one of the classes earlier this week, you know, when you begin to start teaching two and three classes, you can't remember what you said to one group or whatever. I taught three classes this week, one out of Camp St. Christopher as well. But I was just talking about some of the things that are difficult for us in our Christian lives. I have found that, for example, when I do premarital counseling with couples, um, I give them a little bit of homework to do. It's normally fun homework. But one of the first assignments that they get as a couple when they come in for premarital counseling is that they have to go home and have to pray together. That's their first assignment. Now, I don't want to be a downer on Sunday morning, but be aware of the fact that the majority of young people that I I have counseled in the past, I haven't counseled anybody here, so this is not in any way uh, a description of what is happening here in Charleston or at St. Philip's, but in the past I have found that the majority of young people that come in to be married, a good number of them are already living together. Now, presumably, if they're living together, they're also sleeping together. And so I give them that. I don't get into that. I'm, I'm going to give them a little bit of grace and, and charity. And so I simply ask them to begin to pray together. And they come back about a week or two later, and I say, well, how's it going? And they all say, gosh, that is tough. That is difficult. And I find that astonishing. They don't have any problem being naked together. (laughs) But when you tell them they have to get down on their knees and pray together, they tremble with fear. Well, that's part of, you know, I I want to put up the mask. They're fearful if they pray. They're not going to be able to pray like Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer. But you see, let me tell you something. In a marriage, which is foundational, by the way, marriage is foundational to any society. It's one of the reasons why I think it's under satanic assault in our culture today. But it's foundational to any society. But the enemy is going to attack it. He is going to attack marriage And the devil never trembles so much as when a husband and a wife are on their knees together. Because a Christian marriage is not a relationship of two people. It's a relationship of three people. It's a relationship of three people. You bring Christ into the center of that marriage, and that is a marriage that will be sustained in times of adversity and times of prosperity. Let me tell you, it's terrifying for people. That's not to say that husbands don't sometimes say their prayers and wives say their prayers and children say their prayers, but how often do we do that as a family together? See, that's what I mean about being fearless. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go down there with a Bible in hand to the corner of the market and begin to preach the gospel. You can do it right across the breakfast table. And sometimes that's the most frightening prospect of all. 
Finally, to be salt and light in the world means that Christians must be prepared to pay a price in this day and age. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this to his disciples. They were among his final words to them. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think I probably told you that when I was at Virginia Seminary, um, a beautiful chapel, which has unfortunately since burned down and they built a big modern building. We had a beautiful Victorian chapel with a Tiffany window right above the high altar with the words, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel above it. And when I was there as a student, some of us persuaded John Stott to come over from England and preach. John Stott, really the elder statesman of English evangelicalism. And I'll never forget his sermon. He climbed into the pulpit and he began by saying, if you are true to those words, pointing those words over the altar, he said, chances are you are not going to be popular with your congregation. And he said, if you are popular, he said, you better take a good hard look at your ministry because chances are you are not being faithful. And we're all sitting there thinking, oh boy, I'm not sure I want to go into this. But what he was saying was true, not necessarily in the parish ministry all the time, but certainly true in life. If you are faithful and you share the gospel, the world doesn't want to hear it. How many people want to be told that they are sinners? I've not found too many people that like that. It's okay for us to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but it's not okay for you to sing that about me. I can call myself a wretch, but you better not call me a wretch. And so it's hard to share the gospel because the good news of Christ's salvation is for those who recognize that they are what? Sinners. Jesus said, I came into the world to save sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's what? The sick. So the first thing that you need to recognize before you can come to Christ and receive His salvation is to recognize that you're a sinner, to recognize that you're sick. Next week's gospel lesson, I get the privilege of preaching on it, is Jesus cleansing the lepers on the border of Samaria. And part of what that teaches us is, guess what? We are all lepers. We all are inflicted with an illness. We are all, get this, you want to write this down if you're taking notes, we are all, every single one of us, OS positive. You know what OS positive means? Original sin positive. Every single one of us. And yet Christ came into the world for people like us. To redeem us. He loves us just the way we are, but He loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. And we've got to be fearless in the sharing of that message to the next generation. What happens, Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness? If we don't do that, who will? What happens if we hide our light under the bushel? What will happen to the next generation? That's the question that the Lord asks in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I am prepared to move on, but I 
promised you last week, and we didn't get to, give you an opportunity to give me some feedback or to ask any questions that you may have. Um, won't always happen, but here's an opportunity. Martha. Well, actually, they don't. I mean, the, the, the expectation is, get this, the expectation is that um, the person who comes at the end of the procession is the most important person. That, that's the belief I think most people have. Where are the really important people? Is that what most of you think? The important people come at the end of the procession, they're last. We save the best for last. Isn't that what we think? It's actually the exact opposite. Processions in church actually come from the first century and from the age of the Romans. And in Roman processions, when the emperor conquered a foreign land, he would always ride into the area mounted on a horse. And the emperor, get this, in the procession, always came first. The emperor came riding in first. Hail the conquering hero. And then everybody else came in a descending order of significance and importance. And the last people who came in the procession were the conquered ones, were the prisoners of war, the slaves. That's where our church procession comes from. The most important person in a church procession in our Anglican tradition, in Western church tradition, comes first in the procession. The crucifer. The person who carries the cross is the most important thing. That's one of the reasons why it's in our tradition. As the cross goes down the aisle, what do people do? They bow their head out of reverence, out of respect. He's the most important person in the procession. The least important person is supposed to be at the end of the procession, and that's why the priests and the bishop come at the end, because they're not the greatest. They are to be the servants of all. So that's really the symbolism. How many of you knew that? Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. How about that? Some of you didn't. But that's where that comes from. Now, somewhere along the line, we've lost that. But that's what it really means. That's what it really represents. And the priest wears a stool around his neck because it represents the yoke of Christ. He bears the Lord's yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And that's what the priest does. And the only reason we're sitting up front is because we've got to lead the service. We lead the service. By the way, you know, some people like the idea that you stand behind the altar and look out. It's like a table. And I understand that, and I think there's great significance in that. I actually prefer celebrating facing the east because it means that I'm leading the congregation. I'm participating in prayer. I'm not any better than anybody else. I'm just, that's my posture. I'm leading the rest of the congregation and speaking as your representative and nothing more. So that's actually the heritage and the tradition of it. So now you know the rest of the story. So. But a great question. Great question. Anybody else? And as with Jesus, they dare not ask him any more questions. I don't. <laughs> Nothing else? This is your chance, folks.
All right, well, if there are no questions, let's go on to the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Having said all of this about being the salt and the light of the world, Jesus then goes on to say, But do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus places a heavy emphasis here on the law. And one of the most difficult things for us as Christian people to do is to strike the balance between law and grace. Uh, my experience has been in the Christian life that most of the time people fall off either on the hard right or on the hard left. And the Christian life is really finding a balance between them. Bishop Salmon explained this to me on one occasion when he was talking about forgiveness. He said, is that we Christians live in a very uncomfortable world. We live with a foot in the world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, but we also live with a foot in the world of the high moral standard. And he said, sort of straddling that line is an uncomfortable place to be. We would much rather be on this side of the line or on this side of the line. He said, but if you're on one side of the line or the other, you end up with either Phariseeism or Sadduceeism. Who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the skeptics of the day. They were the liberals of the day. They didn't really believe in a whole lot of anything. And we have people like that in the world today. As long as you're happy, God's happy. That's the only thing that matters. And we forget about the fact that of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, which one is used more than any other? Holiness. Most people think of all the adjectives that are used to describe God in the Bible, the one that is used more than any other is love. But that's not actually the case. The adjective that is used more than any other is holy. God is the holy one. And those who would worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. He is a holy God. We say it, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. He is a holy one. And we must never forget that. And he sets the standard of righteousness. What is acceptable and what is unacceptable. This is one of the reasons why the scripture describes sin as missing the mark. And what we want to do in our world is we want to lower that standard, don't we? That's what the world is doing. Lower the standard because we're missing the mark. And so what we're going to do is lower the standard so everybody hits it. But you see, as Christians, we cannot do that. We have to live with one foot in that world of the high moral standard. But what happens when you miss the mark? Well, it can't be turn or burn. We'd all burn. So we have this world of what? Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. On the cross of Jesus Christ, God's love and his justice kiss one another. That's what happens on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that is what we are called to do, to live in this uncomfortable world of a high moral standard, but also a world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. But you cannot have just one and not the other. The same is true when it comes to law and grace. There are some people that are so legalistic about Christianity, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't date girls who do. We all know that kind of legalism. We've all encountered that kind of legalism in the world. But the other side of it is what I would call a hyper-Lutheranism that says you can live as you please and still be forgiven. It doesn't really matter. And Jesus makes it very clear here how we live does indeed matter. 
If we are not living as described here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we will lose our saltiness. We will extinguish that light. So I want to talk a little bit uh, in the time that we have remaining about this dichotomy, law and grace, because it really deals with the most important subject of all, the nature of salvation. Uh, John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, once said, I want to know one thing. He said, just one thing. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. I want to know the way to heaven. How many of you want to know that one thing? How many of you want to know the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore? That's what we want. That's what we all desire. Every single person in the world, whether they recognize it or not, is looking for that. They are looking for salvation. They are looking for that peace which passes human understanding. Now, they may be looking for it in a whole series of relationships. They may be looking for it in terms of earthly success. But we are all looking for that peace which passes human understanding. We all want to land safe on that happy shore, whatever that shore may be. That's what we're all looking for. Well, the question is, what do we have to do in order to obtain it? What do you have to do in order to be saved? I'm happy to say the answer is really very simple. Turn to Acts chapter 16, one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's the story of the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas. And they go to Philippi. Now, you probably know the story. While they are there in Philippi, they encounter a slave girl who's possessed of a demon, and she has the ability to foretell the future. Uh, actually, the Greek's really interesting. It says she was possessed of the spirit of Pythona. That's what the Greek says. Uh, which means that she was possessed of the spirit of the Pythian Apollo. Uh, it was believed that the god Apollo turned himself into a snake on one occasion or killed a snake. At any rate, he was associated with the snake. And it was believed that this girl was actually possessed by this pagan god and she could foretell the future. And she followed Paul around. And she kept shouting out, these are men, servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. And, you know, what she was saying was absolutely true. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed girl is probably not what you're hoping for. And so what Paul does is he rebukes the spirit. And the demon comes out of her. Good news for her. Bad news for her owners. She's a slave girl. And she made them money. So what happens? Well, they bring charges against Paul and Silas. They are accused of advocating customs that were not lawful for the Romans to practice. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. And there's a very good chance that the next day, there's a mob brewing, they're going to be killed. What do they do on the night before their supposed execution? Well, they do pray, but they sing. That's the most important thing. They are singing. They are caged birds, but they're singing. And they're singing out the praise of God. Now, the jailer is listening to all of this. And he probably thinks they're crazy. I mean, how many people would sing on the night before their execution? But we're told that while they were singing, a great earthquake came. God delivered them. And we're told that their fetters fell off. Their chains were free. I love that word, that, that great hymn by Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. 
I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, what happened to him spiritually happened physically to Paul and Silas. Their chains fell off, the lights went off, the jailer rushed in, and seeing all the gates flung open, he assumed that they had escaped. And according to Roman law, if you lost your prisoners, you had to forfeit your own life. So he pulls out his sword, ready to kill himself, and Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're here. How many of you, if the gates flew open, would just sit there and wait? <laughs> Not too many of us, but he did. Don't harm yourself, we're here. And here's what the man says. We're told he came in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, verse 30. Then he brought them out and he said, and I call this the most direct question in all of Scripture. I want to know one thing, Wesley said. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. Then he brought them out, verse 30, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's his question. What must I do to be saved? The most direct question in all the scriptures, what we all want to know. How does Paul answer? Well, to his everlasting credit, he gave the most direct answer in all of Scripture. He did not say, well, you better get your act together. He didn't say, well, by golly, you need to get confirmed. <laughs> by golly, you really ought to join St. Philip's Church. Not that any of those things is bad. What does Paul give as an answer to that most direct question in all of Scripture? Sir, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So when it comes to the nature of salvation, we all want to be saved. The question is, what must we do in order to be saved? What must I do in order to be saved? Paul makes it very clear. The only thing you need to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, I say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not exactly the same as believing in him. Even the demons believe. Remember, this whole story begins with a slave girl going around and saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who have told you the way to be saved. She believed, the demon believed, that Paul and Silas were the servants of Christ. But what Paul was telling him was that you need to place your whole trust, your whole confidence, your whole hope for your eternal destiny on Christ and His finished work upon the cross. And if you do that, you will be saved. This is what we call the doctrine of justification. And Martin Luther called it the doctrine of the standing church. It's laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and not by works, so that no man may boast. You are saved by God's undeserved, unearned favor, which is received how? By faith. What do I have to do? You don't do anything. What do I contribute to the process of salvation? Nothing but the sin from which you need to be redeemed. Hallelujah, what a wonderful message. Now, if you're better than I am, you may not see that as wonderful news. But when you're as wretched a person as I am, and that's the truth, that's the most glorious message in the world. To be saved by grace through faith and not by works. Not by the law, Paul says. Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, verses 21 
through 28. But now, the righteousness of God, and we said before the word righteous here means to be in a right relationship with God. It's not purity of person. It's right relationship with God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. See, Jews believed that you had to earn your way into salvation. You had to keep the commandments. You had to keep the law, all of the restrictions, all of the kosher laws, and then you would have earned God's favor. But Paul is saying a righteousness of God that is manifest apart from the law has now appeared. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, what must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus, again, gives us a description here in the Sermon on the Mount, not a prescription. Now, that raises the question, well, then, are Christians antinomians? If we're saved by grace and not by our works, does that mean we can live like hell? Because that's what some people think. Somebody actually wrote a little ditty about this, which I thought was kind of clever. Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Is that what it means to be saved by grace? Does that mean you can now live any way you want to live carnally? Well, obviously, that is not the case. Why? Because Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, how do you find that balance between law and grace? Well, if you want to know, you'll have to come back next week <laughs> so we can finish it out. So always leave you with a cliffhanger. But if you're wondering today, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Take Paul's advice. Remember this much. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you are saved, you will live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You will be salt and light in the world. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is a living word. It is not a dead letter. It speaks to us across time and space. It speaks words of comfort and challenge to our hearts. Grant us to be the kind of people who read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may be salt and light in this darkened and hurting world. We beg it in Jesus' name. Amen.